The Defense Department is in the midst of carrying out a series of reforms ordered by Congress meant to address sexual assault in the military. The latest numbers show changes can't come soon enough. According to figures the Pentagon released yesterday, sexual assault is more prevalent than at any time since DOD started keeping data. Reporting is down, and so is military members' level of trust in the institution. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has more on the latest numbers and what DOD is trying to do about them. The department's estimates for 2021, based on survey data, are that 35,900 service members were victims of unwanted sexual contact during the year. That's up from 20,500 in 2018, the last time DOD calculated a similar estimate. And the prevalence of sexual assault is also up significantly. The Pentagon estimates 8.4% of women and 1.5% of men were victims in 2021. For women, that's the highest figure DOD has ever recorded since regular statistic keeping started in 2006. And for men, it's the second highest. At a press briefing yesterday, defense officials made no effort to sugarcoat the results. Beth Foster is the executive director of DOD's Office of Force Resiliency. These numbers are tragic and extremely disappointing. On an individual level, it is devastating to conceptualize that these numbers mean that over 35,000 service members' lives and careers were irrevocably changed by these crimes. These events not only have an impact at an individual level, but they also degrade our readiness and ability for the department to conduct our mission. Every incident has a ripple effect across the unit and impacts unit cohesion, ability to trust, and distracts from the critical mission at hand. Among the military services, the Navy had the highest estimated number of sexual assaults, nearly 12,700. The Army followed with nearly 12,100. The Air Force had just over 6,500, and the Marine Corps had nearly 4,600. But although the Marines had the smallest total number, among women it had the highest prevalence. An estimated 13.4% of female Marines were victims of sexual assault in 2021. Thursday's report also shows that more people reported sexual assaults in 2021 than in 2018. And normally, DOD would consider that a good thing, because officials want to encourage victims to report crimes. But that increase didn't keep pace with the estimated increase in actual assaults. The department now estimates 33% of female victims and 16% of male victims reported the crimes to an official source in 2021. That may have something to do with declining levels of trust in the military justice system to deal with unwanted sexual contact. Those metrics declined sharply. For instance, just 40% of women said they trusted the system to keep them safe after an incident. That's down from 69% in 2018. Dr. Ashley Clark is director of DOD's Office of Health and Resilience Research. This is a hypothetical question asked on the survey of everyone. It asks, if you were to be assaulted, would you trust the system? And what we saw in 2021 was a stark decline in perceptions of trust from where they had been in 2018 and indeed in prior years. Um, just in general, it is unusual to see changes of this magnitude in a survey metric that had historically been so stable over time. However, we do note that this mirrors other changes that we see in other survey metrics. For example, in the American um, public overall, trust and confidence in institutions is declining. We also see declining retention intentions and declining confidence in um, potential recruits and in their influencers in terms of whether or not the military is doing a good job addressing sexual assault in the institution. The report also found a very strong correlation between command climate and the prevalence of sexual assault. 
For instance, across the military services, DOD researchers estimated women had a 1 in 12 chance of being victims of unwanted sexual contact in 2021. But in commands where respondents said there was also gender discrimination, those odds shot up to 1 in 5. Where respondents reported that sexual harassment was tolerated, the odds were 1 in 4. Again, Dr. Ashley Clark. For men who experienced sexual harassment, one in six also experienced unwanted sexual contact. So you can see the dramatic impact on the odds that these unhealthy climates have in terms of the likelihood of having experienced unwanted sexual contact. This really builds on, at this point, a very large body of evidence that we have within the department as well as outside of the department that these climate factors are really robust risk indicators um, that are contributing to some of the risk for unwanted sexual contact and really point to the importance of prevention in this space. Also on Thursday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin signed a memo telling the military services to prioritize their implementation of sexual assault reforms directed by Congress and recommended by DOD's Independent Review Commission. Among those changes, staffing up a new full-time sexual assault prevention workforce. Defense officials say they've already hired about 400 people and plan to hire another 2,000. He also ordered 20 site visits by defense personnel officials to both high-risk and high-quality climate installations to look for lessons to inform future policy. And he ordered military officials to speed up the implementation of the new Offices of Special Trial Counsel. Those are the new prosecutorial systems Congress created to take sexual assault prosecution decisions out of the military chain of command. But the new DOD report pointed to possible challenges in that area, too. Thursday's study found that fewer victims are willing to participate in formal criminal proceedings. Officials believe that's part of what's led to a decline in the number of reported cases that end up in charges before courts martial. That figure declined from 49% in 2020 to 42% in 2021. Meanwhile, non-judicial punishments increased from 22% to 31%. Dr. Nate Galbraith is acting director of DOD's Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Office. Our Special Victims Council have been able to advise victims about all the different options available to them to support disciplinary action against their alleged offender. And they have opted to use these non-judicial punishment and discipline and administrative actions and discharges uh, as a way to support action, a discipline being taken against the alleged offender, but yet not having to experience a traumatic experience in court. So overall, what I can tell you is, is that this really is a, is a, sets up a high bar for the Office of Special Trial Counsel that will be taking over adjudication and prosecution of these cases in December of 2023 per the IRC's recommendation and requirements set by Congress. The Special Trial Counsel have to convince victims that uh, court-martial participation is a viable outcome and they'll be supported throughout the full process. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career 
at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say, there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way, 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.